Well, let's uh, pick up uh, with Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Now, um, remember, uh, I perhaps should do this, and I'll do it one more time perhaps. Remember, the context of this very, very, very familiar verse is the larger context of Romans 8, where Paul is dealing with the issue of sanctification. He has made that transition from the doctrine of justification to the doctrine of sanctification. And secondly, he is talking about the role of the Holy Spirit, which he's developed just masterfully. I, I think you would agree with that. And it's such an important passage of Scripture for us to get right, because in the, in the middle of this section, uh, starting with verse 26 and so on, where he's talking about the role of the Spirit in helping in our weakness, helping us to know how to pray, and in fact, interceding for us, and so on. And he prays according to the will of God. That's the end of verse 27. And we know, all right, so now he's, and notice that, and we know, so that's connected with verse 27, because verse 27 is true about the role of the Holy Spirit. Verse 28 is true. So, as we are in a state of weakness, we don't know how to pray. The, prayer, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit prays for us according to the will of God. What is the will of God? And so verse 28 reads, and we know. So this isn't um, the, the word there. This isn't just a cursory knowing of God. This isn't, oh, a flippant. Uh, yeah, I think I heard that somewhere. This is a deep-seated conviction, a deep-seated understanding of who God is. And we know what? For those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I in, intentionally added that and led, let the last part of the clause, that all things work together for good, at the end of the sentence. So let me do that again, because there are two statements that are important to understand what Paul means by all things work together for good. For those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. So I want you to observe a couple of things. First of all, the phrase all things. Now, that, that's very categorical. There's no ambiguity there. There's no lack of clarity there. All things. So, I mean, you and I might even put it this way, everything. Everything that happens to me, everything that's a part of my life. And this is in the context of the Holy Spirit praying in our time of weakness, helping us, enabling us, empowering us in our time of weakness. We know something for certain, those who love God. Now, those who love God, by definition, are believers. Because one of the responses, and this is all through the Bible, but especially the New Testament, especially the Gospel of John, especially the first epistle of John, 1 John, to love God is one of the major characteristics of a believer. So we love God. Why do we love God? And this is one of the themes that's developed in 1 John. We love God because of what he's done for us. We love God because he sent Jesus. We love God because he took care of our sin problem. We love God, we love God because he's sovereign and, and, and directing and, and, and in control of my life. He has my best interests at heart. All of those things flow out of for those who love God. So all things work together for good for those who love God, who have a relationship with him. This is not for the unbeliever. This is not for the person who has not experienced God's grace. This is not that for the person who's rejected God's grace. This is for those who love God, and believers love God because of everything he has done. So by definition, those who love God are believers. And then the other qualifier for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, what, what, I, what I want you to do here, and this is a little hard perhaps, but I want you to Connect for those who love God, those who are called, those who love God are rooted in an understanding of who God is. Those who are called according to his purpose. If you love God, you have a sense of the intention and purpose that God has for your life. I don't necessarily mean in detail, 
But as you begin your walk in fellowship with God, you begin to understand he has a purpose for my life. He has a purpose for me. I'm not a cog, an impersonal cog in some machine. I'm created in his image. He saved me for a reason because he loves me. And I respond in love to him because I understand that his calling on me, his calling on me is effectual, it's certain, it's absolute, and he has a purpose according to his purpose for me. And so to truly be able to put our intellectual arms around all things work together for good, you first of all love God, and by definition, that's a believer. And you have a sense of God's sovereignty and God's purpose in your life. I have been saved. I've been called. Called is the Apostle Paul's favorite vocabulary word for salvation. We've been called. And, of course, it gets, gets into all the stuff about election and predestination, which I just want to set aside. I don't want to get into that right now. All he's saying is you have a relationship with God. You have a sense of his hand upon your life. You're called according to his purpose. And you begin to understand. You begin to develop the conviction. You begin to develop the intentional understanding. God has my best interests to heart. So all things work together for good. Who defines what good is? All right. If we're called according to his purpose, then good, it's a very simple Greek word. It's agathos. There's nothing magical about the word. There's not any hidden meaning. It's just good. (laughs) But it's good from God's perspective. If we are the called according to his purpose, now, you got to make these linkages. You have to make these connections to really get it. What is God's purpose for you in the process of sanctification? To be glorified at some point in, in All right. heaven. Yeah, yeah, the ultimate end of salvation is to be glorified, a resurrected, glorified bodies, and go to heaven. But what's the goal? What's the purpose? What's the intent? What's the end of sanctification? To become... More like Jesus. Okay, to become like Jesus. So remember, we've talked about this before. The goal, the intent, the purpose of sanctification is to become like Christ. And as we are growing in our walk of loving obedience, as we're growing in our dependence, as we're growing in our relationship with the Lord, we are becoming more like Christ. And the best way to think about that is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, not God is developing those character traits in us. So called according to his purpose, his purpose is to become like Christ. That's his plan for us until we go to heaven and receive our glorified bodies. But now in this life, our purpose is to become more and more like Christ. So we therefore can affirm that all things work together for good. That God, if he's sovereign and this is purpose, is using all things to develop in me, not the comfortable life where I'm healthy, wealthy, and wise, to use Ben Franklin's old statement, but a deep dependence on the Lord where he's producing his fruit in our lives. And I have that conviction because I love him. I know I'm a called one according to his purpose, and his purpose is for me in this life to become more and more like Jesus then I can affirm, as hard as it is, in a sense, because we don't know all that God's doing. That's why we walk in faith with him. But that all things work together for good. Now, I've tried to unpack this verse the best way I possibly can unpack this verse. Your assignment is to put it in your own words. And hand it in next week. Okay, that's a flippant. Nobody knows that I mean this, and you won't do it because you know I don't mean it. But are you with me on that? Did I do a fairly accurate summation of what Paul is teaching us in Romans eight twenty eight? Do you have any questions? Follow up questions? Clarification questions? 
another another piece is that what, what are we listening to now? Process of sanctification we go into. I think the parable probably Russell called big examples. Sure. Sure. Exactly. The salt, the light, those figures of speech that Jesus uses. That's right. To be a model, to show people to represent Christ, to show people what the transformed life, what the, the, the justified life looks like. And uh, it's been said, we are the only Bible many people will read. So, I mean, it's how, that, it's how we represent Christ. And this, this verse that we've now briefly studied for the last 15 minutes is a quoted verse. I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people quote this. But I don't think a lot of people think through what it's really saying. Because especially as Americans, we we interpret good as what's really good for our comfort and, and good for our physical comfort. And that is really not the point he's making here. It may involve a part of that, but that's not his main point. If we love God, that's the first part, and we have the conviction or we're the called according to his purpose. What is his purpose for me? Why did he save me? to become more like his son. So if those two things are true, I love him, and by definition, those who love God are believers, and I have the conviction that as a called one, a saved one, according to the purpose God has for me, to become like his son, then I can embrace this proposition. All things, not most things, all things work together for good. This is part of what in, the, in other parts of the New Testament I think, for example, James chapter 1, verse 2, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials because this is how God is developing your character. I just paraphrased it. That's the point he's making. And so we have that. It's, it's, it's a conviction that's rooted in our faith and rooted in our understanding of who God is that we can embrace this proposition. All things work together for good. He didn't say it would be easy. He did not. That's not what he's saying. That's right. Because if, if I could sit down with every one of you and have a cup of coffee with you and talk about this in your own personal life, you would be able to share with me, if you're honest and transparent, I will share with you in a very honest and transparent way. Life is like this. This is life. And it, there are times when it's very difficult, physically, emotionally, spiritually, can be financially, whatever. Because that's the, the reality of living in a fallen, broken world. That's the life we live. But the triumphant nature of our walk is we walk by faith, and we know what the end looks like. We know where this is headed. This is temporary. Eternity is my goal and destiny. That's predestination means predetermined destiny. My destiny has been, been predetermined by God, and that's heaven with him. And so Paul is just saying, your perspective on this side of heaven is, I know God's at work in my life. Transform me into the image of his son. That's the goal. That's his purpose. I love him. Therefore, I can affirm the proposition, all things work together for good. That is life transforming. It really is. And it, it requires faith. Now, Paul could stop there, but he does not stop there. What he does is he launches in to one of the most important theological passages in the New Testament. In your note packet, if you have that or use that, but on page 18 is a little chart, which is a, trans, uh, which is a PowerPoint slide I use, but it's a little chart called the Unbreakable Chain of Hope, Romans 8. And it it is, it's a marvelous, marvelous chart, but it takes apart each one of these words that Paul's about to use. We're new, predestined, called, justified, glorified. And below each term is a little box that explains it. So what, what does Paul do here now in verse, verse 29? I just explained, this is Paul, I just explained to you, if you love God, which is by definition a believer, and you have the conviction that you're called according to his purpose, his purpose is for you to be transformed into the image of his son, then I understand all things work together for good. And Paul says, I want to further explain this to you. Detail this for you. I want you to show 
I want to show you the depths of God's sovereignty. Why you can have the conviction that all things work together for good. And this is what Paul does. It's, again, it's, this is not original with me. They call this the golden chain, the unbreakable chain of hope. Because if this is God's involvement in my life, God's sovereignty in my life, then I can trust him with those downturns, those difficult, trying times in my walk with the Lord on this side of heaven. I'm going to read the verse. It's actually a couple of verses, two verses. And then we're going to go back and take it all apart. Now, again, just remember, there are no verses, there are no chapter breaks in the original letter. So it's just immediately, who are the called according to their purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that, purpose clause, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so Paul is explaining, and that little English word, F-O-R, for, in Greek is gar, it's one of explanations. He's explaining the previous clause. Four, I'm explaining this to you, that God's sovereignty and God's intention and God's purpose for you is rooted in eternity. It wasn't a flippant second thought on the part of God. Oh, I think I might do this. This is God's eternal plan. And the five key words that explain God's entire redemptive plan, his entire rescue plan for humanity, involves eternity past, involves the present, and involves the future. Eternity past is foreknew and predestined. Present is called justified. Future is glorified. So these five terms, which we're going to explain and unpack here in just a minute, if this is the dimension of God's sovereignty in my life, then I can affirm the proposition of verse 28, that all things work together for good. I'm not an afterthought in God's mind. I'm a part of his plan. So let's let's take this. Let's take this apart, because God's purpose and God's design for us is reflected in his plan for us. What he designs for us is a part of his plan. So as we look at this, just take a, if, if you have the chart, that would be great. If you don't have the chart, I, I, I'd encourage you to look at it. It's, again, it's on page 18 of the, of the note packet that Fred would have sent to you a while ago. But let's, let's go back. It's eternity, past, present, and future. First of all, he says, for remember, he's explaining what he's just said according to his purpose. What's his purpose? Those whom he foreknew. Greek word paganosko. That doesn't mean anything to you, but foreknew. What does that mean? Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the world, God chose you. Now, for to foreknow, for God to foreknow me, to God to foreknow you, means that God lovingly chose you. God lovingly chose me. So, again, if I can set aside all of the tension when we feel when we start bringing up words like election and predestination. To set that aside and just understand the power of this word. To foreknow something means I foreknew all about you because I love you. I know everything is God speaking. I know everything about you. I've lovingly chosen you before the foundation of the world, before anything was created. This is the language that's in the Old Testament 
This is the language that permeates, especially Paul's writing, that permeates the New Testament. God for New Testament. <coughs> God did not look down the corridors of time. <coughs> he did not look down the corridors of time and say, okay, there's Jim Eklund. I see him in eternity because I'm not omniscient. I know everything. I see him. And I see that if he's given a chance to put his faith in my son, he will do it. Therefore, I foreknow him and choose him. Is that how we should understand it? Or should we understand it? God's looking down the corridors of time in eternity past, <coughs> before everything was created, looks down the corridors of time and says, I love Jim and I choose him. Now, I just summarized the two points of debate on this issue. This has been debated for 2,000 years. How do we understand what Paul means when he speaks of foreknowledge, election, and predestination? Is God's foreknowledge and choice of me contingent on my choice? Or is my choice of him contingent on his choice of me? I don't believe we're going to settle this. September the 7th at 1210. <clears throat> I don't think we'll settle it, but I, this is where the tension of this debate is. But I can tell you the way Paul is putting this, it's not contingent on my choice. God foreknew me. He had a relationship with me before I had a relationship. He chose me because he loved me. His foreknowledge involves the, if I can use human terms, the emotion of love. Foreknowledge is, is really, should be really understood as rooted in God's love. God is not contingent on me. And, uh, oh, I know what I was going to ask was, and the natural question is, if he loved me and chose me, does that mean those who did not, Put their faith in Christ. God did not love them. Second term, <clears throat> predestination. It, and the answer to that is no, that's not the right way to think about it. Because John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is a, the, the importance of this is what we do with this truth in terms of understanding and accepting the truth of verse 28. For all things work together for good. I'm so important to God that he had a relationship with me before the foundation of the world. To me, that's the best way to understand this, to get away from some of the real intense controversy between unconditional pretemporal choice and contingent choice of God. Get away from that. Just say it this way. God had a relationship with me in eternity past. That's how important I am to him. And second, and going along with the verse, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, it, what's really helpful here is Paul actually defines what predestination means. If you notice that, predestined to be conformed, that's an infinitive of purpose, to be conformed to the image of his son. So what predestination by definition means, God has predetermined our destiny. You know what destiny means. He's predetermined our destiny. However you look at foreknowledge, the predestination is easy. God has predestined, predetermined the destiny after me. What's the destiny after me? That I will be conformed to the image of the Son. The goal, we already talked about that, the goal of sanctification is he has transformed me into the image of the Son. In order that he, and the he there is, is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus is the first. One, Jesus is the first one to be glorified, the first one to see the resurrected body, the first one to be um, uh, 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 receiving that glorified resurrected body, which you and I will receive. So that is, that is the important de destiny that God has, as Jesus receives 
hate resurrected glorified body when he was raised from the dead so we will so we are going to be transformed into the image of jesus not only in terms of character traits but the same glorified resurrected body and if that is our predetermined destiny then that explains why god calls us and it's effectual calling that's paul's favorite vocabulary word for salvation he calls you and you respond to him by putting your faith in him our response to god's call is faith and if our response to god's call on our life is faith then we will be justified that's the fourth word and you already know what that means we've talked about that a lot because that's the theme of chapter 3 verse 21 through the end of chapter 5. Justified means to be declared righteous. The righteousness of Jesus is imputed to our account. We, it's an alien, it's not our righteousness that we earn or merit, it's a righteousness that God declares. And then if we're justified, declared righteous, we will be glorified. The fifth and final uh, link in the golden chain fifth and final unbreakable chain of God's grace and God's hope and life. All that God employs in our lives to accomplish his plan. He foreknew us. He predestined us. He called us. He justified us. He will glorify us. Two eternity past. Foreknew, predestined. Present, called, justified. Future, glorified. So what is God's plan? God's plan, his big picture, mega redemptive plan is organized around those five key terms, the golden chain of salvation. And because that's true, we can affirm the reality of verse 28. I love God, I'm called according to his purpose. Purpose is defined in verse 29. Therefore, I affirm the proposition all things work together. God is at work in my life, transforming me into the image of his son, and I will live eternally with him in a glorified, resurrected body. I know that's true. Therefore, everything that happens to me has purpose, part of God's plan, part of the transformation. That is not easy. It's easy to say it. It is often difficult to live it. Because this is the reality of the ups and downs, the peaks and valleys of our life in the following world. All right. Are Rush you with me? Rush, did you have can, a question? Can, I did. Um, can, Go ahead. Can you connect the our when called our response and faith back to the foreknowledge? Because you're expanding the definition of foreknowledge, and I'd be interested in what your thought is on our response and faith connected to the four to the, the first chain, link in the chain. Well, if, if, Russ, you affirm Calvinism, then God's work of grace and his calling, his effectual calling, is irresistible. If you have been foreknown in the way we talked about it, God loves you, and based on his love, he chooses you, then you will respond in faith to his calling. It's irresistible. All right. Yep. In God we trust, all others must win. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, let's, I want to go at this from another angle because I, I don't want anybody to be confused here or, or even be tripped up. All of these words, poor, new, predestined, call, justify, glorify, are on the right-hand side of the railroad tracks. These are all the terms of divine sovereignty. Now, if you, I hope you remember this because that's something, those of you yes. who have been around for a long time, you know what I mean. This is, that, this is how we reconcile the tremendous tension in the Bible between words like foreknew, predestined, called, etc., etc., God's sovereignty, and he that believes has eternal life, John 6, 47. You respond in faith, you believe. 
in that verse, there's nothing about predestination, nothing about election, there's nothing about foreknowledge. It's just that he that believes has eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, the Apostle Peter says. Paul says that you believe, you have faith, you're a child of God. I mean, all of those, because that's the left-hand side of the railroad track. The human response to the message of salvation is faith or it's rejection. There are only two options. When the truth of God's plan of salvation is revealed to you, you are either going to accept it in faith, he that believes has eternal life, or you're going to reject it. And so what Paul is stressing here in verse 28 and 29 and 30 is the sovereign grace of God detailed around these five key words. It's the right-hand side of the railroad track. Now, that does not mean then that human beings are, are robots and automatons, and they just, it's irresistible. Okay, at some date, God has a plan. Then I'm going to put my faith in it. I can't stop it. I can't, that's the wrong way to look at it. The New Testament doesn't very just to look at it now. When I came to faith in Christ in 1972, I didn't know any of these words. I had no idea about anything like this. I didn't have to understand Romans 8, 29, 30 to be saved. All I had to understand is that I was a sinner. Jesus died for my sin. And he's going to take care of that problem for me when I put my faith in him. And so Paul is stressing the right-hand side of the railroad track, but not to the exclusion of the left-hand side. But he doesn't talk about that here. That's not his focus. It's no, more, the more we understand about God's plan and his purpose, which is what Paul's been talking about, the greater and deeper our faith. Wow. The extent of God's sovereignty in my life is absolutely amazing. Everything so faith, is part of God's sovereign plan. Go ahead. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And our response and our meaningful choice then connects to the other side of the railroad tracks. That's right. And when we come to faith in Christ, then we begin that journey of understanding who God is and understanding the depths of his power, his sovereignty, his might, and the depths of his love, the depths of his grace. You can't, for someone who just comes to know Christ, then help them, help them to understand when you realize that God chose you before the foundation of the world. And all, all those things, it's going to be very difficult sometimes for a new believer. They're just beginning to understand. But the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you begin to understand all that he is and all that he's done, you are, in a much greater sense, amazed at his grace. And you can then grasp what I believe is another important proposition. God always has my best interests at heart. Why? Because of verse 29-30. But one day after I come to faith in Christ, I'm probably not going to understand all that. All right. Well, it's 45 minutes on two verses, but that's okay. This is deep stuff. I knew we would spend quite a few weeks on chapter 8. So, you want to give a shot? I don't think we can do it. We'll get close. You want to give a shot at finishing chapter 8? Verse 31 through 39. This is, this is just, oh my goodness. These verses are just amazing. If all of this is true, Paul says, verse 31, what shall we say then to these things? The phrase these things refers to what we've just been talking about. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All the things that he's promised. And so verse 31 and verse 32, what shall we say? What is our response to this? If the sovereign God of the universe is for us. Who can be against us? How do I know that's true? Because he sent Jesus. So 
the first response is nothing in the perspective of eternity. Nothing can harm me. If God's for me, no enemy, and the chief enemy we have is Satan, of course, no enemy is going to succeed in bringing you down because God's for you. Now, I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but that's a really important biblical truth. John says in his epistle, 1 John 4, 10, I think it is, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. If God's for me, no one can harm me. Eternally speaking, no one can harm me. My security, my security is real. My assurance is real. I belong to God, and he's for me. No one can harm me from the perspective of eternity. And secondly, secondly, verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. No one can accuse you. No one bring charges against you. Why? Because God has chosen, has justified you. You've been declared righteous. That's one of the the really important truths as you go through Old Testament texts and you go into New Testament teaching texts. Satan is our chief, the chief enemy of the believer who wants to bring charges against you. Did you see what Jim Eckman just did? And you say he's one of yours. He belongs to you. He's one of your children. Look what he just did. First John 2, 1 says, Jesus stands up and says, he's mine. I bought him. He's my parent. Jesus is my paracletos, my advocate. No one can bring a charge against me. So there again is another way of putting, if, if I can slip it in here, putting the doctrine of eternal security here. My position is so secure, I am going to sin. I am going to disappoint God. I am going to fall. I belong to him. So who can bring a charge against God's elect? No one, because I've been justified. I've been declared righteous. Thirdly, he says, who is to condemn? No one can condemn us. Because Jesus died for us, was resurrected for us, intercedes for us. No one can condemn us. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who raised, who's at the right hand, who indeed is interceding for us. So no one can condemn me for four reasons. Reason number one, Jesus died for me. Reason number two, Jesus was raised for me. Reason number three, he's at the right hand of God. He's my advocate, 1 John 2, 1. And fourth, he's interceding for me. Just like the Holy Spirit is interceding for me, the Son of God is interceding for me. So no one can condemn me. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. We began this marvelous chapter with that declaration. We're bringing it to an end at the end of the chapter. No one can condemn us because Jesus took my condemnation. He died for me. He was resurrected for me. He's at the right hand of the Father as my advocate, 1 John 2.1, and he is interceding for me. Now, you're beginning, I hope, beginning to get the sense of eternal security. I do not know how you can read a paragraph like this and understand that our salvation is not secure. We can be objects of God's discipline, but we will not lose our salvation. I told you the very first sermon I ever preached, its title was God is not an Indian giver. Didn't I tell you that last week? That's a terrible, I couldn't say that today. But it's the point, God doesn't give a gift and then take it back. And this is what Paul is saying. He has one final point to make. Verse 35, it is. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's, that's an emotional. That's a comforting. That's a very important relational question. Will God ever stop loving me? Can anything I do or any outside force or power separate me from the love of God? Paul goes to great lengths to show no. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He just quoted from Psalm 44, verse 22. Now, you read verse 35, and you read verse 36, you're to reach the conclusion, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Nothing. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. In fact, we're like sheep being led to be slaughtered. But that's okay. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Notice verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Now, that, that's just that's a kind of a favorite theme in the New Testament. It's in John. It's in the First John, and it's the book of Revelation. We are more than conquerors. We're victorious champions in Christ. Through him who loved us, for he, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor his presence, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This relational language of love with God, my relational love with God, nothing can separate me from the love of God. Now, you take verse 31 through 39, which we've now just finished, and you go back to Romans 8.28. That's the reason why you can affirm, I love God. I'm a call according to his purpose. I'm being transformed to the image of Jesus. All things work together for good. I can affirm that because of the theology of verse 31 through 39. My pastor and my boss always say there was a great place for an amen, but you missed it. So nobody said amen. This is a very, this is one of those passages of scripture, by this, I mean, verse 31 through 39. It's one of those passages of scripture. We should reread this about once a week, or at least once a month, certainly at least once a year. It's a good thing to read, you know, January 1st. Whatever, I'm just, this is so powerful because this is how God sees us. And because this says how God, this, God for me, nothing can harm me. Nothing can bring a charge against me. No one can condemn me. And no one can separate me from the love of Jesus. Nothing. So it's a, it's a fantastic affirmation of the positional truth of the believer. Here's my identity, here's who I am, and here's who my God is. I'm secure. I belong to him. All right. Everybody online with me? Everybody here in the room? There's only three here. Yes. All right. I wish, uh, in, in, that, in one sense, I'm really saddened that there's so many men that aren't here today because either online or in the class, because the, these verses are some of the most important verses in the Romans. And they're such important verses to just affirm again and again and again. All right. I'm not hearing any questions. So what I have about eight minutes here. Let me introduce what we're going to do next. Um, if you have your notes and outline um, in the packet, it, it's going to be really important, uh, at least I think it's going to be important, it's going to really be important for you to have laid out Romans 9, 10, and 11 in a unit. Because Romans 9, 10, and 11 are unique chapters in all of the writings of Paul, all the 13 letters, and indeed in, in the New Testament. Now, why is this so central? Because Paul's a Jew, and Paul knows something. He knows that most, not all, but most of the Jews of the first century rejected Jesus. Most of the Jews of the first century did not embrace Jesus as a Messiah. So, in effect, 
Paul must answer a question. Because the natural response to that reality is, or at least it could be, that God's done with the Jews. They had their chance. Jesus showed up. He spent three, nearly three and a half years in their cities and their towns, proclaiming he's the Messiah, doing messianic miracles. And most of them, not all of them, because remember, the 12 disciples were Jews, the 70 were Jews, the 120 were Jews, all the people of Pentecost were Jews. But overall, worldwide, most of the Jews in the first century did not embrace Jesus as Messiah. So naturally, therefore, God's done with the Jews. What Paul does here in Romans 9 and 10 and 11 works through an important theology that is necessary for us to understand the covenantal theology of the Abrahamic covenant. Is God done with the Jews? Answer, no. Why? Because of the Abrahamic covenant. An unconditional, unilateral promise by God to the Jewish people. But he has to explain a lot. Why did they reject Jesus? And was this part of God's plan? And if it was part of God's plan, why did he let it be a part of his plan? What are the role the Gentiles play in all this? Because the Gentiles, in droves, are accepting Jesus as Messiah. They're putting the faith in him. And what's starting to happen is Judaism and Christianity are starting to separate. Christianity is born out of Judaism. But as you get later into the first century, they start to separate. And even today in 2022, there's an enormous gap between the Orthodox Jew and the Evangelical Christian. And so Paul has to explain this. So he works through, and it is, it is an amazing set of three chapters. It's complicated. It's difficult. But it gets at the heart of this question. Is God done with the Jewish people? Now, I want to add one more thing. This is also important in 2022 because something I never thought I would see, honestly, in my lifetime, is regaining some traction. It's something called replacement theology. It is the official theology of the Roman Catholic Church. But it is also a growing, not a majority, thank the Lord so far, but it's a growing, a growing dimension within evangelical theology. And it's certainly true with some of the mainline denominational churches. What is replacement theology? That the church has replaced Israel. That God is done with Israel. God's done with the Jewish people. And therefore, the church has replaced Israel. Putting it another way. The church is the new Israel. And all the covenantal promises God made to the Jews are now made to the church. So the Jews are done. Now they can still, if they put their faith, they can still come into the church, but Israel's done. God has no plan for the Jewish people. His, his covenantal promises to them in the Old Testament, don't worry about them. They've been canceled out because they rejected Jesus. So the replacement theology at its core is the church replaces Israel. And if the church replaces Israel, then the, the natural result of that is God done with the Jewish people. So anything that's happening among the Jews is irrelevant. It's not a part of God's plan. Paul forthrightly and categorically rejects that. And as we get especially into chapter 11, in 9, 10, 11, he's going to give the defense that when Jesus comes back, all the Jews who are alive at that point will embrace Jesus as a Messiah. And he will say in Romans 8, 11, 26, all of us will be saved. And he will, he, will, he will allude to Zechariah chapter 12. They will look upon him whom they pierced, and they will believe. There will be the national regeneration of the Jewish people. Jews who are alive when Christ comes back will put their faith in And so Paul is going to work his way through this complicated theology. The only this question is God done with the Jews. His answer is no, he's not. But he has a lot to explain. That's why um, in the weeks to come, 
what we're going to be doing is quite important. All right. Everybody online know where I'm going with this? Yep. All right. Well, it's almost a quarter of an I think I'm going to stop because I'm not going to get started with this and then in, in two minutes. But we will see as we begin chapter nine, Paul bears his conscience. And he really he states something. If I could lose my salvation for the good of the Jewish people, I would do it. So the emotion of Paul is clear there, but tragically, there's a lot he has to say. It's a powerful set of chapters, 9, 10, 11. I hope you'll be able to be here. All right, I'm going to pray then and let you guys go. Father, thank you for our study of Romans, and especially chapter 8. We've been in chapter 8, I, I think, three weeks, uh, if not more. It is one of the most important chapters, I think, in the whole Bible, but it's certainly one of the most important chapters in the New Testament. It, it is so critical for us to understand the issues of security, the issues of assurance, and the importance of us seeing ourselves the way you see us, and the importance of the Holy Spirit. Paul worked through four major categories of the Spirit's work in our life in chapter 8, crowning it off with those incredible words, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. So, Lord, we're thankful for that truth. That's, that's the core of our assurance. That's the essence of our security. That's the truth of who we are in Christ. So I pray for these men. There are so many that aren't here today. I wish they all could have heard this. This is such an important passage. But nonetheless, for those that are here, I hope it's been a blessing for them. Give them a good rest of this day and in their work, in their lives, in their families, in their relationships. And they represent everyone who are